as we hear God's word together. Jesus be with you. The Gospel of Mark hinges on one question. It's in chapter 8, verse 29. Who do people say that I am? It's Jesus asking the question. That is the question of the book and the question that calls us together today. I have to tell you, I'm nervous. I'm excited. My heart's pounding. I feel like a kindergartner on the first day of school. I believe God's going to do something radically um, profound over these next weeks as we look at the vintage Jesus, as we go back to primary source documents and try to understand who Jesus is. I believe he's going to take us deeper into our rhythms, these uh, rhythms we try to live out as God has called us to advance his kingdom, the rhythm of transformation, having our heart become more like Jesus' heart. Uh, neighbor, helping us love our neighbors and taking them deeper into their lives and then restore, helping us get out into the places, especially the dark places of our community and around the world where we show up in the name of Jesus. I believe that this is going to radically wreck our church pretty good. Now you say, Larry, you say that before every series starts. Yeah, but this time, I really mean it. Who do people say that I am? Who is Jesus? Today, out of the gate, we're going to hear three answers to that question. An answer from Mark, who writes the gospel. An answer from John the Baptist, who's the first character to appear. And then an answer from God the Father, speaking over his own son at Jesus' baptism. Before we get to Mark... I think it'd be a great question to ask, why did Mark write this down? Why do we have the Gospel of Mark? Mark was the first Gospel written. Scholars believe that both Matthew and Luke borrow from Mark. Mark is the primary account of the life of Jesus. But why did Mark write it down? The answer is, is because it finally reached a point where it was necessary. You see, in the first 30 years of the Christian movement, everything was carried about Jesus' life, the story, by oral tradition by eyewitness testimonies. And so uh, you see this, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is writing about the resurrection to the church of Corinth. He says, look, there's 500 people that saw Jesus alive, and they're still alive. Go talk to them. So in the earliest decades, the authority of the story was carried by eyewitness. Richard Bauckham puts it this way in his, his majestic book. If you're interested more in the origins, especially of the Gospels, I would recommend Jesus and the eyewitnesses. He writes, in the period leading up to the writing of the Gospels, Gospel traditions were connected with named and known eyewitnesses, people who had heard the teaching of Jesus from his lips and committed it to memory. People who had witnessed the events of his ministry, death, and resurrection, and themselves had formulated the stories about these events that they told. They remain throughout their lifetimes the sources, and in some sense that they may have that may have varied for figures of central or more marginal significance, the authoritative guarantors of the stories they continued to tell. So how this worked would be, let's say someone wanted to come in and kind of mess with the Jesus story, interject, you know, either their own opinions or make up stuff. Someone might have come in, for instance, and said, hey, when I heard Jesus speak, his voice sounded like rushing waterfalls in the spring. And an eyewitness would have said, what? No way. It sounded like Jesus. It was just a man's voice. And they would protect the story because they themselves had heard Jesus speak. 
after 30 to 40 years, the eyewitnesses began to pass away. And so then it would become necessary to begin writing down the story of Jesus from the eyewitnesses. We get a sense of the integrity of that process from Luke's gospel. Luke tells us exactly, he's a uh, Gentile medical doctor, tells us exactly how he sat down to write his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And, and you can go on there, how he carefully investigated and put down on, in writing those accounts. The same is true for Mark. Papias, who was a pastor and bishop in Hierapolis in ancient Greece until the year 130 AD, Papias tells us that Mark sat down with the eyewitness accounts of Peter and put them uh, in writing as Peter remembered them. So what we are reading when we read the Gospel of Mark is the eyewitness account of Peter. So keep that in mind. In fact, you'll catch this as you read through the Gospel of Mark. Peter is mentioned more than any other follower, and Peter is present at, at most every event that Mark relates. So this is the eyewitness account of Peter. Now, Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Witnesses, also points out that isn't that rather astonishing? That here in the founding documents of the Christian movement, you have an unfiltered account of Peter cursing Jesus in public in his denials. And no one trying to mess that up, make Peter look better. You'd think if someone was making this stuff up and you were trying to start a movement and it was based on myth and legend, you'd want your leaders to look good. Not so. It's a very unvarnished. And even Peter himself, who's giving the account, tells us his own story of how he failed the Lord. So that's why Mark wrote the gospel to give us Peter's eyewitness account. Now let's ask the question, what does Mark say to the question of who is Jesus? Let's get right at it. I find it interesting for Mark, and his gospel is characterized by action, present tense verbs, and words like immediately, and so on. I mean, he just gets to the point. There's no childhood stories about how Jesus was born or what he was like as a kid. There's no genealogies that connect him to King David. There is no theological treatises that say he's the word of God. No, let's get at it, shall we? Let's get right at it, Mark says. Mark 1.1, here we go. Here's Mark's answer to the question of who is Jesus. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. A couple words there, titles and words we need to underline. Good news. It's one word. It's usually translated gospel. Now this would have rung in two different ways to, to Mark's audience. To the Jewish part of his audience... They would have understood this word as a word that in often in the Old Testament was used to describe victories from the battlefield. So in First and Second Samuel in the First Testament, you'll hear the word used to describe the victories of David's mighty men. It's good news! We won! So it's news that lifts the heart with the word of victory. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, you read, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. So it is a word or a message that lifts the spirit. 
So hold on to that. That's what gospel is. But to the Romans, gospel meant something slightly different. And they would have heard it through their culture this way. When they heard the word good news, they heard news that shapes the world. For instance, they've actually found a calendar inscription from 9 B.C., Uh, that is a a calendar that is about a man named Octavius we know as Caesar Augustus and it says this on this date 9 BC this is the birthday of a god the beginning of good news for the world and there you have the exact phrase the beginning of the good news so for the Romans they believed that when they there was good news It was something that launches a new era, a new moment of history is now entered the world. So when Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, he's saying, this lifts the heart. This is really good. And it's news. It is something that that, because we've heard it, our lives will never be the same and the world is changing Notice he said this good news is about Jesus. In the Old Testament, that's the name Joshua. Jesus was named Joshua because Joshua means the salvation of God. God saves. So every time we say Jesus, we're saying God saves. And Mark underlines that he's the Messiah. Or you may see that translated Christ. It literally means the anointed one. So in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed, oil dumped on their heads, and especially kings. Whenever a new king would enter the throne, they would sit there and someone would dump oil on their heads, much like when we have the swearing-in ceremony at the Capitol Rotunda. It's just part of how a king takes power. And it's saying that someone is the Messiah means they are given the power to rule. Now, for Israel, this was an especially meaningful word because for all of their history, God had promised that he would send an anointed one, one who would be given power to rule. And since King David was the most famous king and their best king, even the prophets after David would say he will come in the spirit of David. He will be like David. He will have power and love, and he will launch an eternal kingdom so the jews were waiting and especially in the first century because they were under the thumb of rome they needed to be delivered they had no power in their culture they were oppressed slaves and they were waiting for the messiah to come and lead them out of tyranny mark says that's jesus probably not quite what they were expecting He goes on, not only the Messiah, but the Son of God. Again, that title is a claim of deity in the Old Testament. And even in the Roman culture, the Caesars were called the Son of God. So both cultures would have heard someone who is either endowed with God's power or someone who is actually a God themselves. So you have the high claim of Jesus being the Messiah. You have the higher claim of Jesus being the Son of God. But Mark's going to make sure that we understand exactly which God he's the son of. And that's where we get the next quotation in the next two verses. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, this is from Isaiah 40. 
I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Make the king's highway. Now, quoting from Isaiah, John or uh, Mark wants to be sure that we understand that John the Baptist, who we'll talk about in a moment, John the Baptist is the one that was prophesied in Isaiah, the messenger who would come. That's John. And the messenger is going to proclaim the one who comes, the one that's going to be baptized, the one who John's going to point out is the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. Here's the point. Mark wants us to understand in no uncertain terms that Jesus is Lord. Now let's unpack that for just a moment. We need to really understand that. In the Old Testament, that name Lord is written capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It is a specific title. You'll often hear it this way, Yahweh, the Lord. It's the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, Lord, who shall I tell them is sending me? And the Lord says, tell them, I am is sending you. The Lord. This is the holy name. This is the name that Jews, Orthodox, still today will not say or write. It is so holy. It is referencing the one who made the universe, the one who rules the universe, and the one who will judge the universe. This is the highest claim of divinity possible. And Mark wants us to know, who is Jesus? He is the Lord. Yahweh. We get a sense of how massive this deity is. I wanted to just bring a couple verses from Isaiah just to get your head swimming. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Mark wants us to know that Jesus claims the highest divinity possible. He is the Lord. What does that mean for us? Let's apply that just for just a few moments. Do you know what it means? It means Merry Christmas. Every Sunday here is Easter, and every Sunday here is Christmas. Christmas means the invisible became visible. Christmas means the immortal became mortal. Christmas means... The invincible became killable. Christmas means the infinite became an infant. Christmas means the Word became flesh. And that means Christianity is unlike any other religion or worldview because no other religion or worldview says the I am became a man. How should we respond to that? extremely as we read through the gospel of mark here's what you'll notice 
No one who encounters Jesus ever reacted to him moderately. John Stott, in his book, Basic Christianity, says people responded to Jesus in one of three ways. First, they knew exactly what he was claiming. God become flesh. And they wanted to kill him. Blasphemy. Get him out of my life. They did not want him. The second way people responded in the Gospels to Jesus was that they understood completely what he was saying and they counted the cost and said, no, I'm out of here. That would wreck my life. The third way, they understood completely what he was saying and they fell down before him and said, I'll follow you. And the whole orbit of their life became about him. You say, Larry, I, you know, I wish I could do that. I, I wish I could believe like, like they believe. But you know, back in that day, they were primitive, right? They believed in legends and myths. And you know, I'm a sophisticated modern. <laughs> okay, let me step on your toes here a little bit. First of all, everything that you have in your modern, sophisticated worldview came from them. Rome, Athens, Jerusalem. You have nothing in your worldview that isn't borrowed. You use it, they invented it. Don't give me any of this chronological snobbery. Second, you say, Larry, there's just so many cultural, you know, obstacles and intellectual objections. Mark wants you to know that the Christian movement was launched from the Jews. Why is that important? Here's why. Because if anyone in the ancient world had a worldview that would resist God becoming flesh, it was the Jews. The Jews never would have believed that Yahweh, unapproachable, holy, pure, would become a baby and rule the world from the womb. Never! Jesus shattered the worldview. He is a shattering personality and he breaks apart every worldview. Do you know what Mark's counsel to you would be if you're asking, and by the way, that is a totally honest question. One that we all should ask. Do I believe this? That is a great question. You know what Mark would tell you? Keep reading. Keep reading. It is hard. It's the hardest thing you'll ever have to believe. It's not easy to believe it. Keep reading. Let me show you this shattering personality who launched a movement from the Jews, the least likely people to have ever believed it. Let me show you who he is and see if you don't come to believe. So Mark's saying he's Jesus. He's the Messiah, the promised King, the Son of God, the Lord. He's come to you. John the Baptist wants in. John the Baptist says, who is Jesus? Well, he's the most powerful person I've ever met. 
a few words about John the Baptist. We're not going to read verses 4 to 8, but I want him up there just so you can kind of just get a feel. First thing, just note, note how notorious his ministry is. I mean, he shook a whole country. It's interesting that in Acts, around 30 years after John the Baptist was beheaded, there are still disciples of his wandering around, and Christians begin running into the disciples of John the Baptist. He had that much influence. Uh, he even made it into Josephus, one of the great Jewish historians who wrote in the first century. John the Baptist is mentioned by Josephus as a great prophet. And that's just it, you see. I think Jesus, when he launched his ministry at his baptism, I think he wanted a prophet to be there praying. And indeed, I mean, the, the garb that he wore was from Elijah, the things that he ate like locusts. By the way, did you know that in 1947 when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, that there were recipes in the j jars of clay there that uh, talk about how to prepare a locust to eat? Can you say protein shake? <laughs> the other interesting thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you haven't thought about this lately, what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was copies of most all the Old Testament that were a thousand years old. But uh, as far as they've been translated over those thousands of years, since, uh, to up until 1947, they were completely accurate. We have the, the Word of God preserved for us. That's another sermon. John the Baptist was a prophet because Jesus wanted a wild man to pray at his baptism. Why? Because Jesus was a wild man. I think we're drawn to wild men, wild women. I think every man wants to be a wild man. Often we find ourselves in lives like John the Baptist compared to the temple culture of his day. You know, we're, we're repressed, we're confined. We, we get into these ruts and we think wild. I think we want to be wild, yeah. Uh, 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 I think every man wants an adventure to live. I think every man wants a battle to fight. I think every man wants a beauty to rescue. I think every woman wants to be a wild woman. I know the moms are always telling your daughters, I want you to marry Mr. Rogers, but I really think that you're eyeing Russell Crowe in those magazines as you walk through the checkout aisle at King Supers. I know. I know every woman wants an adventure to live and a battle to fight. And they want to be the beauty that's rescued. How do we get that? We get it by attaching our lives to the wild man, Jesus, the one of whom John says, the one more powerful. The one more powerful. The hard part is that you usually have to get into the wilderness to find him. You have to get into the wilderness to understand that he is the greater one. The wilderness is that place where there's no water, no food, no community. It's that place where you're not going to make it unless God intervenes. That's the wilderness. And we get to those places in our lives. And often that's just part of the growing process that we go through throughout our, our hopefully long lives times in the wilderness. It's in the wilderness that we realize all those other wells we've been drinking from that we think give life, like our job, like our money, like our success, like our sports, all those wells, they drain, they get dry, they dry up. 
And then we, we get in those places in the wilderness where there's no food, but the things, you know, we thought the family would, would nourish us, and we thought that our relationships and friendships would nourish us. We thought our, our work would nourish us, but that bread gets moldy too. I, I'm sorry to be a bad news bringer here, an anti-gospel guy, but everything you're holding on to to feed you, especially the good things like your family, you're already losing your grip on them. You can't keep them. It gets moldy. It's in the wilderness where you find the well with the water of life. It's in the wilderness where you find the food that comes from heaven that does not rot. And when in the wilderness you find that he is greater, that's when your heart is captured. That's when you're willing to wash his feet, take off his sandal. I mean, you are willing to throw every down in your, everything down in your life in order to follow his. It's in the wilderness. And it's not only at the beginning. If we jump ahead to verses 12 and 13, after Jesus is baptized, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but after he's baptized, he's led into the wilderness again to stay there. And notice what it says. The Spirit led him into the wilderness and he was tempted in the wilderness 40 days. Like a lot of other famous people in the Old Testament, just the path here, and then being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. I want to point out two things quickly. Angels attended it is, is in a specific tense in the original language. That means it wasn't just at the end, but it was throughout the wilderness. Throughout the 40 days, the angels were ministering. They showed up for Jesus continually. The wild animals, very cryptic. Scholars are divided about what exactly that means that Jesus was with the wild animals. Let me give you my best interpretation. It, it's not original with me. It comes from a scholar named William Lane. Mark is written to a Gentile audience in Rome. What was happening around Rome in the years 64 uh, when Peter was crucified upside down in Rome to 70 when Jerusalem was sacked by Rome, um, what was happening is the Neuronic persecutions, Nero, and he was killing Christians. Do you know how he's killing a lot of them? He would put them into the Roman Colosseum on the floor, and he would wrap animal skins and animal hides around their arms and their legs, and he would have them run throughout the Colosseum floor, and they would release lions and other wild animals who would eat. You get the picture. Jesus was with the wild animals. I just wonder if this is a cryptic way to say that even on the worst day of your life, Jesus is already there. And John the Baptist answers the question, who is Jesus? By saying he is the one more powerful and you will find him in the wilderness and the third voice to answer the question who is jesus is the father we approach now the baptism of jesus verses 9 through 11 again I, i'll let you read it we need to just say a couple things as we approach the water of baptism before jesus is baptized we need to ask a, a big question why was jesus baptized 
The baptism of John was for repentance. It was sinners who were coming to be baptized, turning their lives back to God. Jesus was perfect, and he wasn't a sinner. So why was he baptized? Answer is given by Matthew. Matthew tells us that as Jesus approached John, John hesitated. He said, no, I can't baptize you. You should baptize me, Jesus. And Jesus, I picture it, you know, kind of speaking right up close to his ear, saying, no, no, we must do this now so that I can fulfill all righteousness. Here's the thing about Jesus. He came not only to put himself on a cross and die for our sins and give us cleansing and forgiveness. He also came to live the perfect, obedient life that we could not live and to do everything that was right and righteous. Jesus did. And then when we say, Jesus, I'm yours, his life is given to us. And then we have the fitness through his righteousness, we are justified to be in his presence. Let me illustrate it. A couple years ago, I read about a baseball card that was worth $500. And on this baseball card, there were three people. And on the top, it said, future stars. The first guy listed, his name was Jeff Snyder. He pitched one year in the major leagues. He appeared in 11 games and gave up 13 earned runs. The second guy was named Bobby Bonner. He played for four seasons in the major leagues, and he appeared in 61 games and had eight runs batted in. The third guy, well, let me tell you about him. He played in over 3,000 major league games, most of them consecutive. He had over 3,000 base hits, 1,600 runs batted in, played 21 years. Who knows him? Cal Ripken Jr. So imagine if Bobby Bonner walked up to you, showed you his baseball card, and said, hey, my baseball card's worth $500. What would you say? You'd laugh. Because the reason that card is worth $500 is not because of you, Bobby Bonner. It's because of him. The reason that any of us will get into the Hall of Saints is not because of our statistics, but because of his. His life is granted to us. And thus, we are saved. That's why Jesus was baptized. To fulfill all righteousness, to live the life that we should have lived. He did everything right. So he goes down into the water, comes back out, and it's a moment. It's a big moment. The text says the skies were ripped open. That's a word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the parting of the Red Sea. This is a new exodus now. The skies parted. The Spirit floods down, and the word describes a filling of Jesus where it went into him. The word that's emphasized is into. He was profusely filled with the Holy Spirit for ministry. And then, 
it says that the spirit fluttered the dove it's the word fluttered over him and what the spirit does throughout the ministry of jesus is always shine the floodlight on jesus so that we know he's the lord he's taking us back to creation and said he's the one who was there in genesis 1 2 when the spirit fluttered like a dove over creation he's that lord and then the father speaks who is jesus listen to the father this is my son whom I love. In him I am very pleased. The ancient Cappadocian fathers, they called this moment the perichoresis. You might hear the word in English choreograph. That's right, the dance. This is the dance. The Father loving the Son. The Spirit shining the light on the Son. The Son honoring the Father and being filled with the Spirit. This is a look, an unveiled look into the, the reality. The nature of reality is love. What was the existence like before God made the universe? It was love. It was joy. It was the Father loving the Son, the Son obeying the Father. They, were, they glorified each other, John says, which means they threw their weight behind the other. This is a loving community of joy. Now, here's the implication. Listen to this. This is really important. What this means, that forever God has existed in a loving, joy-filled community, is that He did not make you and I and this in order to get joy or love from us. He already had that. And he had it from much better sources than you and I. No. The reason he made you and I was not to get love and joy, but to give love and joy. That's who he is. He did it to invite us in to the dance. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he went to the desert for us. Everything he did was to bring you and I into relationship with his Father so that we become part of the dance. So that we can be a child of God and hear the words, you are my beloved child whom I love. In you, I am well pleased. To the degree that we hear Jesus inviting us into the dance of the Trinity is the degree that his love becomes the engine of our hearts and drives us into every relationship, good and hard, with his love. Who is Jesus? Mark says he's the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord. And John the Baptist says he's the most powerful one, and you'll find him in the wilderness. You will. And the Father says he's my son whom I sent for you to invite you to the dance. That's who Jesus is.
Dietrich Bonhoeffer said Christianity is a decision. What do you decide? Who is Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit who takes the blinders from our eyes. Come. Come now. Help us see the dance. Help us step towards you in this moment. We want to say to you, Jesus, I'm yours. I will put my life in orbit around you. Meet me in those places of doubt. Meet me in those experiences of discouragement. Meet me in those days when I go hours and hours with not even thinking of you. Meet me there, Lord. Bring me to the dance. We pray this in Jesus' name, and now we stand and we sing it in Jesus' name. Amen.